You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, a good teacher should be able to compress his or her teaching regardless of the time. So I'm not frustrated if you're not. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. As promised, I said we would work on the parables uh, and... We spent several weeks in the parables earlier in the fall, and I covered at that time parables in Matthew chapter 13. I'll talk for a few moments while we sort things out, and then we'll pray. But in Matthew, he groups all of his parables basically together. And after the Sermon on the Mount, gives a sermon of parables. So he groups the parable of the sower, the parable of the treasure and net, the parable of the weeds and and the wheat. He groups all of those together to kind of define the message of the parables. I think Matthew's interesting in that I think Jesus had almost reached a communicational impasse where his teaching was not going to be received without outward physical violence against him and the disciples. So parables was a sort of chosen communicational strategy to get past the impasse, to be able to communicate when people had stopped listening. And Matthew divides the crowd from the disciples through the communicational technique of the parables. Now Luke uses the parables differently. And I find that kind of interesting... I think Jesus had so much variety and dynamic to his teaching that the apostles, the gospel writers, the evangelists could take that material and work it in a variety of different ways, all of which were authentic to Jesus. So John doesn't use parables at all, but he uses signs. Mark stresses the action of Jesus and does not say a whole lot about the parables, he has parables. The parable of the sower is in all the synoptics. So that's where we began talking about the parables. And I summarized that under number one. By the way, on this study sheet, cross out six. I don't know what I was thinking, but there's a six there at the bottom of the first column. But Jesus used parables, one, to avoid a communicational impasse, to divide the crowd from his disciples, to preserve the integrity of the truth, to heighten the privilege of the truth, to commend the truth implicitly. Now, I find that fascinating because American Christianity has a strong sense of being very explicit in its communication of the gospel. And the epistles are very explicit. But up until the time of the cross, and the resurrection, Jesus really implicitly communicates the gospel, which then makes it somewhat difficult as to how far to interpret a parable. Because is there a kind of explicit statement that Jesus is making about himself in the parables? I believe there is, but an explicit interpretation, but an implicit message. To form a quiet theology of of the Christ and to build on the types and images of the Old Testament. 
So the parables look maybe simple on the surface, but they're very profound underneath. And they're often drawing on Old Testament images and symbols in order to make the message. Well, let's read the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Listen carefully, this is God's word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. That's a really damning statement. You have an awful lot said behind that statement? Because wherever we are in the mood to justify ourselves, we know that we're outside of the gospel grace. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord God, in these moments, in your word, we ask now for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. May the message, the indirect message, the implicit message of this particular story hit home to us in ways that an explicit statement would not. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, all good teachers use stories. We respond better to stories than we do to statements. We like pictures over propositions. I tell my students that if you have a choice between a story and a list, choose story. If you have a choice between an anecdote, especially about yourself, Choose an analogy. They usually last longer. Stories over lists. It's a very important way, I think, of, to teach. Now, the question that also ought to be asked, did Jesus have to die to tell this story? That's a William Willimon question. Uh, former bishop 
here in uh, Birmingham, the Methodist Church, did Jesus have to die to tell this story? You've also heard it from this pulpit here, that question. I think we always, in the light of the gospel, should say yes. And that kind of leads us into understanding how Luke brings us to this point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot has taken place. I know this is our first parable, but the turning point has already been reached on the way to Jerusalem. The transfiguration has taken place. Jesus has sent out the 70 or the 72. He's told them to travel light, witness clearly, keep it moving. In a way, he foreshadows the Great Commission. Couldn't have asked for a better sermon from Acts 8 to set the context for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is already envisioning the outreach of the gospel to the Samaritans. So there's a number of reasons why he would use the Samaritan in the story, but he's already envisioning the kingdom of God coming. He's already envisioning the church, the body of believers reaching into Samaria. He's already envisioning Philip's Pentecost moment in Acts 8. And he tells this story in response to a critical expert in the law's question. James K. Smith has been working through volumes underscoring the fact that we are not what we think. We are what we desire. And we are shaped not just by concepts, but we are shaped by the milieu of all that goes on around us. So it could be that we are creedally orthodox, but when it actually comes to life and the way we live, we aren't so close to God in Christ. And we are more a reflection of a culture than we are a reflection of Christ. The expert in the law asks a question, and he answers perfectly. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He quotes from Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Well said, Jesus. Class over. Answer given. Let's go home. And that's how it could have been. Jesus isn't pushing this conversation and he's certainly not pushing the story. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now that takes us to number four here. Uh, the stats that I mentioned in number three about the 18 miles between Jericho and Jerusalem and the descent from 2,500 feet down to 770 feet below, that's why... The Psalms of Ascent, you're always climbing up to Jerusalem. And whenever you leave Jerusalem, you're going down. Well, when you're going to Jericho, you're really going down. And it's a rough road, and not much that uh, could hide, or not much that would save a person from the onslaught of robbers and thieves. But look at number four. Augustine, in the 300s, 400s, gives his interpretation of this parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And he believes that the half-dead man, robbed and beaten, lying in the ditch, stood for Adam, who had fallen from the heavenly city, Jerusalem. And he thought the robbers symbolized the devil, who stripped him of his immortality. And the priest and the Levite, they stand for the law, which was powerless to save. And the Samaritan, who showed him mercy and bandaged his wounds, represented Christ. The inn reminded Augustine of the church, the innkeeper, the Apostle Paul. Now, if you do an exegesis paper at Beeson Divinity School and you come across with that interpretation, you will get an F on your paper. We're pretty down on allegorizing these days in evangelical circles. But I prefer Augustine to some of the reformed preaching that takes place on this text. That's number B, or letter B. Other interpreters reduce the parable to a gotcha moment. They argue that Jesus lays out an impossible standard of conduct to prove that we can only be saved by grace. So when Jesus says at the beginning here of this conversation, do this and you will live, and then he says at the end, go and do likewise, some in the reform circles would say, well, that's impossible. We can't do this. We can't love everybody, everybody, without boundary as our neighbor. And we're always going to so fall far short that only by the grace of God can we respond to Jesus' teaching here. Well, of course you can only respond by the grace of God, but I actually think there is a doing there is an action that's being called for here. It's not just a, uh, something transpiring inside of you. It's inside of us and out as a reflection of what's happened inside of us. Jesus is the Good Samaritan because we cannot be. Well, I think Jesus wants us to be the Good Samaritan. Now, the means to being the Good Samaritan is because he and by his grace, enables that. Well, I've already talked about Luke setting the scene in the six that shouldn't be there. But now let's move on to number five. Jesus is approached by the biblical scholar, and he aims to start an argument, or he aims to find a fault in how Jesus responds to the question, who is my neighbor? And it may very well be that Jesus has raised questions in the minds of many who took the Word of God seriously as to his relationship to Samaritans, to enemies, to Roman centurions. Because Jesus really seems open, responsive, particularly relational with the very people that the Jews felt that in order to safeguard our identity and the integrity of the law, we need to set up a boundary with. And yet Jesus seems open to that. And I describe that there. Number seven, the biblical scholar may have thought that Jesus was too open to foreigners. And so his self-justifying follow-up question may be prompted by his observation that Jesus was more open to an outcast than a law-abiding Israelite ought to be. 
three ways of describing that are right there under number seven. So eight, the Bible expert expected to turn this debate in his favor. Now there's two specific passages there that are really important, and so eight is significant to get down explicitly. The Leviticus neighbor stands in parallelism with the children of your own age, with your own people. So I quote from Leviticus 19 in the same passage that has to love your neighbor as yourself. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So neighbor is in parallel with your own people. Now, if you're reading that as a law-abiding Jew, you feel that neighbor has now been defined as your own people. Not only that, in Hosea, the prophet Hosea has some very explicit words to say about the people of Samaria. Verse 16 of Hosea 13, the people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed to the ground, their pregnant women ripped open. Well, you can see where there's a certain sense in which a law-abiding Jew felt that they needed to keep the boundary. They needed to define neighbor as their own people. Number nine, the experts saw the love of God in tension with loving certain people who did not qualify for being your neighbor. Some people were excluded from neighbor love, but Jesus' parable really eliminates that option. You know, some churches have, in order to grow, have defined their target audience. One very well-known American pastor says you can tell who your target audience should be by the people you'd like to go on vacation with. I can't think of anything more anti-gospel than that. But for years in the 80s and 90s, establishing your target audience and going for it was something that was talked about widely. I don't think Jesus had a target audience. He did have a target audience. It was the marginalized. It was the poor. It was the leper. It was the Samaritan. It was the person who didn't fit. I thought as uh, the message was being given on Acts 8, a church that targets the audience is going to end up with a lead pastor that's like Simon the Magician and not a Jesus-like person. Number 10, the 19th century Danish Christian thinker Soren Kierkegaard established, distinguished between loving the people we actually see versus a high-flying love that is always waiting for the right person to love. Now, it's really important that you see I mean, it's, re- it's possible, isn't it, to live in such an enclave that everybody you do see is your own kind, your own people, as it were. He compared an airy love to actual love. 
an airy-airy love to an actual love. Kierkegaard reasoned that our duty is not to find the lovable object, but to find the person before us lovable. Actual love, loving the person before us, is always concrete and often sacrificial. The opposite of actual love is a theory of love focused on the ideal. And we never have very far to look. I remember one Christmas Eve, this was years ago, this was not in this context, this was not in Birmingham, but years ago an elder wrote to me on Christmas Eve. Now my wife has always warned me not to read my email before I go to bed. This came in at 10.30 on Christmas Eve and just a livid, angry email. It was about somebody else in the church. It really wasn't about me. I probably could have passed it off, but the anger that was being expressed on Christmas Eve about somebody else in the church was just uh, was awful. And I had just finished reading this section in Works of Love that week in Kierkegaard about the needing to love the most unlovable person. And the difference between airy love and actual love. And, you know, I was all set to just unload on this elder. Because I could break his argument apart. I could defend the person. Uh, He was just really wrong. As it turned out, he had had too much to drink. And that had more to do with the email. Uh, But I didn't. I found Kierkegaard's meditation on love that night very intrusive. I didn't even want it. I wanted to unload on him. It's always easy to be theoretical about love. And very challenging to be very practical about love. Number 11, mercy over merit. Obviously, the priest and the Levite uh, represent the law. Augustine, I think, was right there. They stand for the religious order. But we don't need to bother too much as to why they walked away. That's, That's somewhat immature. They're very uninteresting people. And religious experts in the law, by and large, are very uninteresting people. You may have noticed. We don't have to harp on the reasons why they walked away. They walked away. But most of the story, and as you read the story, you realize that Jesus relishes every aspect of what the Samaritan did for the half-dead guy. It breaks into staccato phrases. And I count 12 things he did. 12 things he did for the guy. So let's not distract ourselves with the reasons why the Levite and priest walked by, but let's concentrate on this 12-fold picture of what the Samaritan does for the half-dead guy. Well, which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, 
can't bring himself to say Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. The one who showed mercy. Because we all know biblically that we can't show mercy without having received mercy. We understand that there is a grace-filled dynamic. Mercy breeds mercy. And that mercy is never instigated. It never rises up naturally from fallen people. But it does rise up from those who have bent the knee, bowed the head, understood what they're receiving by the grace of God. As John says, we love because we have first been loved. Now, isn't that interesting? We've got a minute or two. Does Jesus see himself in this story? Now, hardline, orthodox, biblical scholars have a tendency to say at this point, no, he doesn't. Keep in mind, who, and this is one thing that's so important with the parables, who is giving the story? Jesus. What is Jesus doing? He's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. He's already twice shared this with the disciples who have not yet gotten it. This is what's on his mind. Doesn't he see something of himself in that good Samaritan that risks offending the law in order to do what God has designed by his covenant mercy? That mercy trumps the law. And so he chooses the Samaritan in order to make that point dramatically, graphically. Something that gets in the expert in the law's gut. So I think there's an identity there that Jesus is sharing, a messianic self-understanding that's being reflected here on the course of the cross. But I think there's even something more. Does Jesus see himself as the half-dead man in the ditch? But only not half-dead, but fully dead. That he will be like that. And the description that is talked about here of what happens to this uh, man in the ditch is akin to what happens to Jesus through his passion through his physical torture, through his hanging on the cross, through being nailed to the wood. So is Jesus not only the, the merciful one like the Good Samaritan, but he's also like the suffering servant who is punished, who's beaten up, who's killed for our sins so that our transgressions are laid on him and the iniquity of us all is taken up by him. Is there a sense that Jesus knows this as he tells this story of mercy over merit? In the light of the canon, 
and the whole counsel of God, I think we can make that case. In the light of all the types that point forward from the Old Testament to the New, I think we can begin to grasp that. Well, in the next few weeks, we'll be studying the parables. Uh, and you might review this if you like, uh, but we can enter into this prayerfully and thoughtfully and hopefully see ourselves as recipients of God's mercy, just like the Samaritans. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the way you humbled yourself into our humanity, came into our neighborhood, and showed us your glory and your truth. May we express and be grasped and embrace this message of your gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.